0: This is Dr. Joe Armstrong. We're back again with another episode of the Moose Room and we're finally getting to beef grazing, like I told you we would get to eventually. So we've got two guests with us today that are, I'm very thankful that they're willing to give their time to doing this, especially as we get into spring and there's lots going on on farm. We've got Angie Ford with us today. She is a feedlot producer from Southwest Minnesota, where she is also the region seven director for the Minnesota state cattlemen's association. And in her spare time is a registered nurse. Eric Mosel is also with us, and he's our extension educator, lives up in Grand Rapids, works for the University of Minnesota Extension, and he is our resident expert on grazing and cowcat. Thank you again for being with us today. Again, don't, don't be afraid to email us with comments, questions, anything you want to hear on the show. Email them to the Room at umn.edu. That's T-H-E-M-O-O-S-R-O-O-M at umn.edu. Thank you for listening have fun in this episode. All right, everyone, welcome to the Moose Room. Uh, as you heard in the intro, we're here today with Angie Ford and Eric Mosel. We're talking about beef grazing. I've been promising this episode for a while now, and we haven't gotten to it because we've had some other things come up with everything that's going on right now. Uh, hopefully you had a chance to listen to the first two episodes, the, da- the general grazing episode and the dairy grazing episode. That'll get you set up for what we're going to talk about a lot today, and we talk about the beef side. So, first question's for Eric. We're wondering really, you know, why do we graze in a beef system?
1: Historically, most beef systems were based on a lot of cheap grass. Uh, The land was relatively cheap, the grass was almost a non expense. And the easiest way to utilize that land was with ruminants. You know, with predator problems and this and that and the other, it, a lot of it gravitated towards beef cattle because they were the easiest to run. You know, by and large, that's still the case. Uh, obviously, when you get into, as you go further east, cheap grazing is harder to come by. A lot of that has transitioned into grazing crop residues, you know, planting forage for grazing, uh, just trying to intensify the system a little bit. Uh, those types of things but you know primarily it uh, it typically is is about as cost competitive as you can get to feed a ruminant.
0: When we're talking cost what I've heard all sorts of numbers thrown around as far as like compared to being in a lot the cost per head per day what what is the difference when we're really looking at that cost?
1: Well it, you know, I mean it kind of depends on, on what class of cattle you're talking about, but uh you know, let's let's just let's just talk cows right now. You know, your typical pasture cost on a cow is probably gonna be you know well, I mean it depends on where you're at, of course, but you're probably looking at a dollar twenty-five to a dollar seventy-five a day. Uh where that might cost three to three fifty a day in the lot you know, again, it kind of depends on what your objective is, but now you transition that into cost of gain. Your cost of gains on grass are astronomical. Uh, your cost of gain in the feed yard is, is, is extremely competitive to, to you know, compared to what the market value of that gain is. And so a lot of it just really depends on what your objective is. If you're just feeding breeding cows, then obviously, uh, you know, grazing is the way to go. But uh, Uh, if you're feeding livestock for market, then grazing actually is not that attractive. But there are some attractive components to it, which we can get to a little bit later.
0: Yeah. And I think maybe we should focus on cows to start at least where we're looking at the cost and everything. And and really, uh, when you look at the difference in those prices, we're looking at Any anywhere from a dollar seventy five to two dollars a day that you spent that you save every time you can keep those cows on on pasture a day longer, right?
1: Yep, yep. It adds up.
0: Yeah, that adds up really quick per head per day. Now, one of the ways, I mean, maybe because of that, I mean, that is such a huge cost savings. Maybe we should go into some of those ways that, and the beef side that we we keep those animals out there longer. You already talked about crop residues. I mean, most of it's probably corn, right? Do people graze a whole lot of other crop residues other than corn?
1: Well, again, it kind of depends on where you're at. But, uh, you know, pretty much any, I mean, a cow will eat anything. Um, it's just that corn is mostly what we have. But, you know, there's guys that will run cows on soybean stubble. There's guys that will run cows on wheat stubble or, or any, of cere- any kind of cereal stubble. Um, I mean, you name it, those guys, will, you know, they'll run cows on. But yeah, I mean, corn corn stover, corn stalks are the most common. And that's mostly mostly to cheapen the ration, right? Is that really the big reason why they're doing it? Well, I I guess it kind of depends on whether you're talking about grazing corn stalks or feeding corn stover. Because they're kind of two different things with two different objectives. Um, You know, the stalks, grazing stalks is simply a cost thing. Stover, on the other hand, in a complete ration can have a a various objectives, you know, depending on what you're trying to do. You may be just trying to simply dry the ration out a little bit because stocks are not, I mean, stocks are a cheap component of the ration, but not always the cheapest. And sometimes it's just simply availability. That's what we've got the most of in terms of gut fill.
0: Do you you see less people grazing stocks in the last few years as the price of bedding has gotten so big and people are wanting to bail that or no? Uh,
1: A lot of it just depends on where you are. You see the little bit of that in certain spots of Minnesota. um, Certainly. Uh, I think a lot of it depends on if there's a large dairy component. Uh, If there's a large feedlot concentration, uh, then yes, there's definitely some pressure for bedding but if there's not those things then then no typically not
0: so so one thing i hear about grazing corn stocks all the time is that people worry about acidosis and like actually getting too much corn left out in the field is that something that we actually have to worry about i mean assuming that there's not a big someone didn't spill a pile of corn a big pile of corn out there
1: yeah no that's really not an issue anymore where that really comes from is years ago when combines were not that efficient they would leave a lot of corn in the field um and probably back once in 1986 there was a guy over in cass county that had that happen to him and of course that's the gospel truth now but the reality is is it's a pretty rare deal but years ago you know there probably was some merit to being careful of that anymore the combines are so efficient that it almost would be nice if they would drop a little bit of corn just to improve the value of the residue, but they just don't, you know, they're, they're that good.
0: Yeah. They've gotten, they've gotten very, very good. Yeah,
1: it's I, just phenomenal.
0: And I, I just love watching if you turn a, to turn an older cow out into that crop residue, it's still one of my favorite things to watch. They, they've learned to go look for that corn. And yes. they,
1: you'll they see the, the oldest cows immediately will walk the edge of the field because that's the most likely place that the, the combine, not the combine, but the combine operator cut the corner a little too close or something uh, and missed a few. And that old cow that's, you know, nine, ten years old, she's been there before. She knows where to find it. And yeah. they'll just go run into the corners.
0: Absolutely. So in the, in the dairy grazing episode, we talked a lot about rotational grazing and wh- why we, we need to do that because we need high value forage, high energy, high protein and it, and it needs to stay that way as for as long as possible. So we rotate very, very heavily. Is that still worth it on the beef side to, to rotate you know pretty aggressively and, and have a very intense system? Well,
1: anytime you can intensify the system in a beef system, is going to be positive. However, what you'll find is that a lot of it depends on whether the operator keeping the books uh, values their labor, um, and that, that's really what it boils down to. Because if you look at it from a labor perspective, it even though you can increase, you know, forage production, you increase intake, you do all these magnificent things, but the value of that is it doesn't really compare with the amount of labor that's spent on it it's not like dairy where you can you can put some labor into things you can put some inputs into things and the turnover is is not only valuable but it's immediate I, I'm sure there are some situations where it definitely does pay to be extremely intensive but on the balance i would say the reason you don't see a lot of it in the beef world is because most guys don't feel that it pays and i for the most part with some exceptions tend to agree
0: is there a middle ground there where you're still thinking that maybe simple rotation where you're taking them and using a pasture once a year grazing it pretty heavy and then moving them does that still have value
1: well it definitely has value um you know, and I'm not suggesting it doesn't, but what you find is that, especially when you get into Minnesota, you find out that most guys with beef cows rent pasture. And the opportunities to, uh, if it's not already set up to rotationally graze, the opportunities to do that are, are not real great. And so I would say that's as much a factor as why we don't see a lot of more rotational grazing in the beef deal than what we do.
0: Um, well, Emily, you're being very quiet, which is weird. I, I, this is the long for me, right? This (laughs) is the longest we've ever gone recording and Emily has not said something. So Eric, we'll continue since Emily doesn't have a question. Well, what?
2: Okay. Do you want me to ask a question? I can think
0: of something here.
1: Um, mm. okay. Bradley will ask. You know, you talk about, also grazing corn stalks in the fall eric you know what about other you know we talk about stockpiling is that is that a good thing do people still do that besides corn stalks or is that not really seen in the beef world as much uh well it is in the beef world but not necessarily in minnesota because somehow or another dairy guys um, (laughs) guys got it in their heads that a cow is afraid of snow. And a dairy cow, maybe, I don't know. I don't have a lot of experience. No, not not afraid of snow at all. Not I at didn't all. figure that would be the case. Not Bradley's cows. <laughs> and a beef cow definitely is not. In fact, they, do, they actually do quite well digging through the snow to find stockpiled grass or any other type of forage. As an example, uh, it was 20, well, it must have been 2013 because that was the year we had that really... Significantly bad winter, according to my father in law, who says that every winter is one of the worst ones we've ever had. But anyway, um, it seemed to me to be significantly a tough winter, even though uh, I re- I'm originally from Nebraska, so it, every winter is a tough winter for me. But, but I wanted to run a study up here in Grand Rapids to look at some of these stockpiling issues that you guys are, are, are mentioning, and so I had. Uh, a couple of fields planted to German millet. And my thought was, is I wanted to find some type of grazeable forage that cows could work on all winter, regardless of how deep the snow got. You know, I mean, corn has its issues when it comes to snow. You get a lot of leaf drop, um, not as much lodging as there used to be, but you still get some of that sorghum does not work at all because it lodges so bad. So I was like, well, let's try some millet. Uh, so we planted this millet and I don't know, it probably got about five feet tall. Um, and it was, it was planted probably about the, well, actually it was probably more like the first of July. It was planted a little bit late. I don't remember why, but, uh, and anyway, we turned the cows out into it in, uh, no- first of November. Okay. So it's Brown dried up, frosted off. And those cows worked on that. Until the first of March, you know, up here in in Grand Rapids, anyway, we had almost ninety inches of snow between November and March. I mean, wow. there was friggin' snow everywhere. I'd never seen so much snow in my life. And uh, them cows, they would they would just work through that that millet, and I would supplement them just a little bit of distillers to make sure they was getting their protein. And they came off that millet, and then there was a a control group that was just, you know, a conventional feeding system, hay ring, whatever. Um, And those cows that were on that millet came off in better condition than what the cows that were just eating hay out of the hay ring. And uh, we wintered the cows on the millet for $9 a month. Wow. And the, the hay in the ring was like $53 a month or something like that. Uh, The point being that, uh, you know, there are some options to stockpile forages for cows. Um, They're not afraid of snow. I I, I know there are some situations where stockpiling has been tried and it hasn't worked out so well. If you get some really icy, crusty snow and it's a, a very short statured forage, they can cut up their muzzle pretty bad to the point where they'll stop grazing. But I think that's fairly rare, mm-hmm. uh, and could easily be remedied uh, with a variety of of options. Anyway, you know, once you break that crust open, then they can they can get at it just fine. Well, you just hit in there with a the
2: hammer first, and then yeah. I
1: mean, like in like when when I was growing up, if if the you know we never fed hay. I mean, everything was you turned them out on the range and, and they grazed all winter, it didn't matter how, how deep the snow got because you didn't really have much hay anyway. And if we got some crusty snow, which was pretty rare, but if we did, we'd just turn the horses out and the horses would go bust all that crust up and then the cows would follow them. And I did some research years ago in South Dakota where we had a similar situation. And i just go out there and bust the snow open with the tractor and once the crust was, Once there was a crack in the crust, then they would take it from there. But they got to be trained to do it. I mean, if they've never done it before, if you've had your cows up next to the barn all winter for the last 10 years and you pet them every day and you know do whatever guys do with their cows when they have them up that close, then you know they're they're going to cry a little bit if you just turn them out and expect them to figure it out for themselves.
0: Are are you putting a bedded pack out there with them, Eric, or no?
1: What's that?
0: Do you put in a bedded pack out there, or are you just letting them no. be in the snow? Just let no. them
1: be. Eric does not coddle his cows. No, I can no, and them. I get I'm chastised God. by my wife and father-in-law for being such a mean individual. But uh, I'm just like, if she can't cut it on her own, then I, you know, I don't know what to you, tell you. You can do that with a dairy cow too, no problem. However, that you know, myth got started that all oh, dairy cow can't can't go out and do those things I, I, I don't believe it I mean cows are tough it's unbelievable all right so I do have a question okay <laughs> and uh, in true me fashion
2: I realize I might be opening a bit of a can of worms here but I have heard you know going back to the discussion earlier Eric on letting letting cows grazing corn stalks in my area so I'm in central Minnesota I've heard of issues sometimes with, I don't know if it's neighbors calling it in or what, that, you know, cattle are in these fields. And if it's a small field and the amount of cattle that you have in there, that you technically need to get that field, like, certified as a feedlot. Um, And that there's been some regulatory issues with letting cattle... Uh, be you know in their grazing corn stocks and again, I don't I don't know all the context of some of these issues, but I think it's probably you That's know there's a an
1: excellent question. Yeah, and much of this has been addressed in the last several years through PCA. Um, and I I say addressed loosely, but uh, they're going along with it at least for now. If the animal is actually out there grazing, there's no issues. Doesn't matter how many there are, the pasture exemption. In the, in the in the law book uh, covers that. The issue is when they're out there on corn stalks and you're feeding them harvested feedstuffs, that's where there gets to be some issues. Without recounting the entire history of this, which nobody wants to hear anyway, largely PCA seems to accept if you're feeding feedstuffs on Uh, like say, for example, corn stalks, if you're feeding feedstuffs out there and you're moving the feeding area regularly, they are accepting that. If there is still some level of vegetative cover on the soil surface and you're feeding some supplemental forages, they are accepting that. Um, If the area is completely denuded of all vegetation, there's there's poop running into the ditches, usually based on neighbor complaints. Um, But anyway, that's when PCA feels that they have to act and do something. That's my understanding of the current situation. So just simply feeding your cows on corn stalks does not necessarily mean that Mm -hmm. PCA is going to have a problem with it.
0: I'm glad. I mean, that's a, it's a good point, though, because I think we, we do see frustrated neighbors and people call stuff in that maybe they shouldn't. And it's good to know that for the most part, things are actually working out logically for once. You mentioned supplementing, Eric, and, and we've been talking kind of about it a little bit. How, how do you decide when you need to supplement and then how do you decide what to supplement with?
1: well the need to supplement you know generally is you know hopefully a person is testing some forages on what they're feeding cattle and i don't know that that always happens i think somebody that's been feeding cattle cows or whatever for 20 or 30 years has a pretty good feel whether the what they're feeding them is any good or not and so you'll see two types of operators i guess there's the type that well, we're just going to throw some lick tubs out there anyway. The fact that you know they they're costing you two dollars a day that's irrelevant. They're just going to be out there, and then you've got the type that tries to. I mean, they go a little bit overboard with the testing and and trying to nail everything down. I mean, you know, feeding a bunch of dang breeding cows isn't rocket science, you know, because they're 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 flipping half of the feed out of the bunk onto the ground anyway um and they'll still eat it it might be a month later when it thaws out but they'll still eat it um and and so it's not a very exact science anyway and so typically what you see is you know either some commercial supplement you know like a lick tub around here or maybe some component of dist- distiller's grains is typically what you see.
0: Um and the, di- the distillers is just to get that protein?
1: The protein usually and and you know depending on where they're at you know if I mean you, you'll you find some guys if they get that the cows are a little thin come, coming in off grass they might feed some distillers right away just to kind of beef them up a little bit before it gets real cold. Um, and you can do that relatively cheap depending on you know, what the price of distillers is, but typically it's uh, pretty reasonable, especially from a protein standpoint.
2: If you can get your hands on any.
1: Yeah, if you can get your hands on any, that's, that's an issue in some areas. But the volumes that cow-calf guys need generally isn't enough that it's a problem. It's a lot different if you're running a feed yard and you're feeding a truckload a day. But then, you know, I mean, like right now I'm working with some guys that are a little bit on the larger end of the cow-calf deal out in the Dakotas, and they're kind of panicking over this distillers thing. So we're kind of hunting up some canola meal and, you know, some different odds and ends that might work in case they can't get distillers. But so far it hasn't really been a problem that's materialized. It's all conjecture at this point. The situation in Minnesota might be a little bit different.
0: It seems like we've become fairly dependent on distillers, and I think... The big thing is that that we recognize that we're what we're really looking for is a cheap byproduct feed that has what we want in it, and there's a lot of that out there, you know. That's not distillers sometimes, so there's a lot of options. It seems like now they're not necessarily in the same kind of quantity as distillers, right? I mean, we can get a lot of distillers fairly quickly a lot of times, and that's why it's got a lot of value to us.
1: Yeah, but, that's really what made it was so popular was you could. Yeah get, you know, get it anywhere. But, uh,
0: you know, if, if
1: distillers goes away for a while, we'll find something else. I'm not too
0: worried. I do Now, Angie, do you, we haven't heard from you much and I apologize. We haven't asked you a whole lot of questions yet, but did you, so right now, as far as I understand it, you're getting your own, are you getting your own cattle in and then into the feedlot or are you buying cattle that are, are weaned or just weaned and getting them into the feedlot to start backgrounding?
2: yeah we source from western South Dakota Montana area get in weaned calves from out there, and then we just have a handful of our own cows that obviously we finish out too
0: and and they are are they bunk broke before you get them or are they are they coming straight from grass?
2: We are literally straight from the cow onto the trailer to our place, so it's pretty noisy when they get here.
0: I bet I bet I bet so how how do you let's get into how you make that transition? They're coming straight off of grass. And they're going into the feedlot. How are you starting them to, to make that transition?
2: Usually, the first at least 24 hours, they're just getting grass hay in the bunk, just to give them something to nibble on a little bit to get them to adjust. Because obviously, there's a lot of stress going on in their life right there, going from wide open pastures with mom to where's my mom and who are all these other crazy guys in here with me?
0: Right. So right.
2: that's how we started with. And then they started at a very high. Um, forage level ration and just kind of slowly creep them in that way.
0: And so, and, and how about water? The other thing I always worry about is water. These these range cattle that are on grass, they see, sometimes they only see that that inverted tire water tank, you know? So how do you guys have deal with that? Do they, do they seem to figure it out right away?
2: They actually pretty much do. They're, they do a lot of circling the pens, as you can imagine and uh so they're walking by it and seeing it and we have different um we have monoschool buildings with big tanks and we also have slat barns that are smaller pens so it's pretty easy for them to locate the water once they get here you know get their cells oriented to what's going on in their new home
0: now do you, do you know if the source that you're getting them from is creep feeding or not
2: no we don't honestly um we work with with a buyer out there, and he sources them for us. Um, we usually they just come with a handwritten paper on what they've had for shots, and that's about it. But yeah. I would I would venture to guess no.
0: Yeah, coming from out west, I would guess that that they probably don't see creep feed very often. No. I guess we're that y'all were people. Yeah, people. People's the other thing. I guess that's a good transition into this creep feeding question, Eric. What? How do you decide that? Should I creep feed? Should I not creep feed? What? What makes that decision?
1: Uh, typically what the calves are worth, you know, is the value of the feed compared to what they're worth, worth feeding them.
0: And, and does it, does it save the pasture at all? Do those calves actually eat a whole lot of grass or are they?
1: Yeah. I mean, it, 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 it can save some grass, especially if you can creep feed them for a while and then early wean them, but just creep feeding them alone, you know, maybe, maybe 10% savings of grass. Okay. Um, so it's not huge, but, but it, you know, when you're short of grass anyway, it can make a big difference. So, uh, you know, and I, you know, one of the things I've always been a little bit concerned about creep feeding and it's never, it's, it's been difficult to really get a, a handle on is, you know, there's, there's been some evidence that when these calves are exposed to a high energy ration while they're on the cow, and then they're weaned and they go, you know, and then they're sold and then they go through the receiving process. And so anyway, their energy level is up here and then it drops down here and then it goes back up here. There's some evidence that that can really stunt marble. Huh. Now it's been, it's been difficult to really get a definite finger on is that universal, or is it just individuals? Or you know, I don't know. But uh, hmm, and, goes, and I also think it depends on what they were crep fed on. You know, obviously yeah. uh, a co-op creep feed that's some pellet of byproducts is going to be a lot different than you know 120 oh. days on Haki ration.
0: Right, right. That makes sense. So
1: that that's probably a component of it as well. But but. I've tried several studies to, uh, to try and, and figure that out a little bit and they've largely been inconclusive. I, I've, I've seen about the same evidence that I've seen reported in other places, but nothing like so consistent you can just say creep feeding causes some problem in terms of product quality. And, and that is not, doesn't seem to be a very consistent response. We know it happens, but, but how consistently it is, its has been a little bit hard to tell.
0: So, Angie, you said that when these calves come to you, they're from out west, and they haven't seen people very much. How, how, do, you, how do you get them used to people being around all the time?
2: Uh, I think that's some of my jobs. I walk pens every day looking for, for sick ones, but you have to be very careful. Like You don't want to sneeze, let me tell you, because any loud noise like that, and it's like chickens run into the corner of their pen, and it's you know, dangerous for everybody pretty much starting on the outside just so they can see you at a distance and and doing it that way is the best and it doesn't really take that long once they realize that you're not there to try to eat them you know like a predator would have been and and they do warm up but you know they are just a different they're a lot different than a dairy put it that way (laughs) beef calves
0: yeah i've i've worked with them before gotten gotten cattle from out west and yeah they're quick they're really Mm -hmm. really quick
2: yeah, and they're not scared of you. I mean, there'd be nothing for them to want to decide to run you over versus run the other direction. They got quite the fight or flight response going
0: on. Yeah, and and I it it doesn't take too long as far as what I can see, but you've got to you've got to do it slowly and make sure they know you're not a threat and you mean mm-hmm. food. I mean, yep. that that's always a good way to get to them. Uh, it, it would be challenging though if you've got if you've got grassland cattle coming into the feedlot. All right. Well, I think we're, we're getting close to time. We've got a lot. We've got a lot that we talked about. Um, hopefully, you guys got something out of this listening today. I want to thank Eric Mosel and Angie Ford for being here again. Really appreciate them uh, giving up their time to, to come here and talk with us. Uh, with that, we'll wrap it up. If you need any more information or you need to, uh, something to reference, go to extension.umn.edu. And if you have any questions for us, comments about the show, anything you want to hear, uh, email us at the moosroom at umn.edu. That's T-H-E-M-O-O-S-R-O-O-M at umn.edu. Thanks for listening, everybody. We'll catch you next episode.
1: My son didn't want to do math this morning, so I taught him how to play gin Rummy, and I cleaned him out. <laughs> nice. That's
0: perfect. That's math.
2: Oh uh...